That was the J Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie nerds. I'm James. I'm a digital media creator. I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale. I have a column on world cinema and one on lost films. And I apologize if you can hear ambulances in the background because something's going on in my neighborhood. I'm Andreas. Uh, everything's everything's cool over here. I am the creator and head writer of Films Fatale. And you could check out uh, this week, as well as the, the ending of last week, I've started writing one sports or Olympics film review each day in honor of the Tokyo Olympics. But we're not going to look at that today. We're going to instead check out a different topic. So James, this was your idea. Plain and simple, but very, very effective. Lots to talk about. What's the topic for this week? Well, I thought it might be fun to talk about some of our favorite trilogies. It's because aside from single films, you know, who doesn't love a good trilogy that's very full and tells like a more expanded story. But I decided to kind of make it more interesting. I decided to allow for narrative trilogies and also stylistic trilogies because Mm -hmm. not every trilogy is always following the same story or within a specific franchise. Some people do, you know, they'll play with a theme. Every movie's different, but they kind of go along with that theme. Like, Gus Van Sant did, I think it was for you as the Death Trilogy. I think it's called the Death Trilogy. It's the films yeah. Jerry, Elephant, and Last Days. Um, Lars von Trier, his, I think his entire career is based on this model where most of his movies fall within like stylistic trilogies. Or you think like Shinji Tsukamoto, he's got the Tetsuo Trilogy, mm-hmm. one film released every now and then that deals with this kind of weird cyberpunk concept where every film's different, but it kind of follows the same thing. Yeah, I just thought it might be fun to, you know, talk about stuff like that. And then for the second half, we're going to discuss a film that we thought could be expanded into a trilogy. It's amazing stuff. Uh, Who wants to go first with this amazing topic? I'll go first. Yeah, let's hear what trilogy are you going to kick everything off with? So I went with a stylistic trilogy, and it is Baz Luhrmann's Red Curtain trilogy. And most people don't even realize these films go together. But it starts with Strictly Ballroom in the early 90s, a film made mostly in Australia, and it's about the subject of ballroom dancing. Then you've got Romeo Plus Juliet, starring Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, late 90s. And then in the early 2000s, you cap it off with Moulin Rouge. So like many young women in the early 2000s, I went through a Moulin Rouge phase. So I have that movie basically memorized. I watched Romeo Plus Juliet a few times in high school, mostly at the behest of English teachers. And then Strictly Ballroom, I hadn't actually seen until this past Sunday. It's definitely got the, throughout the Lurman trademarks of choreography, of very fast editing, of highly stylized movements with simple stories. What's interesting is that he took different aspects of theater, and so each one is a different section of the theater, because that's his background, is spectacle. Strictly Ballroom is obviously dancing, and then Romeo and Juliet using Shakespeare is words and lyrics and poetry, and then Moulin Rouge is the glitz, the glamour, the entire spectacle of it all. I would say of the three that Strictly Ballroom is interesting because it has the actually highest Rotten Tomatoes rating. It's considered the best, and in some ways I would agree it has an earnestness that the others don't. But uh, Moulin Rouge is always going to be a favorite, and I do think it has the best production quality. Romeo plus Juliet, I'd kind of stick in the middle. There's nothing too wrong with it. It just didn't grab me. Uh, Have you guys seen these movies? I've seen uh, Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. I'm not the biggest Baz Luhrmann fan. However, the little I know about Strictly Ballroom, which I hate to admit I've never even heard of until a few days ago when you brought it up to me, 
for little I know, I'm willing to give it a chance. I'm not a big fan of Baz Luhrmann in general, but I always have appreciated that he tries aesthetically. He's always got like some sort of a vision. I don't really like the end result, but like, for instance, when it comes to Romeo plus Juliet, the soundtrack is killer. The cinematography is killer. I, I'm not like a big fan of the film itself, but it's definitely got a voice. So to see that at its best, I'm very interested. So that's the only one that I've not seen. But despite what I would have felt initially, I'm actually considering checking that one out. Yeah, same for me. I've seen Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet, but I haven't seen Strictly Ballroom. I've known about it. I just haven't given it a watch yet. It's definitely worth a look. It's early Lerman, so it's not quite as polished as the other two, but I think that makes it better because it allows more of the story, simple story still, but it allows the story to shine through. How maximalist is it compared to the other two? Because Baz Lerman, maximalism is his forte, and you see that in how elaborate the design is for Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. Not so much design, but it is quite big. Like All the dancing is quite huge. All the acting is very over the top. But he is working in a more realistic setting, and it looks like any ballroom dance competition you would see. So it's not over-the-top sparkles like Milan Rouge or something, or an enormous Venice Beach party. Um, I found it very interesting a couple of years ago, the uh, ice dancers Scott Virtue and Tessa Moyer adapted Moulin Rouge into an ice dancing routine that eventually won the gold medal in Pyeongchang. Yes, I've seen that. My girlfriend's obsessed with with that duo. Oh yeah, it it is an extremely sexy dance. But um, anyway, it showed to me just how huge Lorman's work is and that they can fit the whole thing, the whole story into a five minute dance and yet you can convey every bit of it in these large motions in this routine. That, That to me is the essence of Lorman, that it's Great visuals, and yet it's distilled into a very small circumstance. That's why I always wished I liked him. I just don't. You know, Lana Del Rey being attached to The Great Gatsby, that makes perfect sense. I'm a very big Lana fan. They're both very melodramatic artists. I I wish, like in a good way, there's nothing wrong with melodrama if it's done right. I wish I liked the stuff more. So I'm, I'm actually willing to give this film a chance, uh, Strictly Ballroom, because... I don't have a problem with his his heightened style. It's other things. So I, I want to see him at his best, I'm telling you. So that could change stuff for me, I'm telling you. I'll let you know what I think. Definitely, you should go for it. Yeah, otherwise, like like you said, no idea that this was a trilogy. Didn't even know that that first film even existed. But regardless, didn't even know Romeo and Juliet plus Milan Rouge were meant to be tied together. So very interesting stuff. Oh yeah, it definitely, I would like to watch all three of them in a short period of time just to see how it grows and evolves because I saw them all out of order. Yeah, well, that that should be worthwhile. Uh, James, you came up with this topic. What was your trilogy that you had in mind? Well, I decided to go with Lars von Trier's Golden Heart trilogy. Okay. Okay, when you brought up Lars von Trier, I was, that's actually the one that I had in mind. Of, of his trilogies, that's the best one. Please do tell. So the Golden Heart trilogy is kind of defined as, you know, each film deals with a naive heroine who maintain their golden hearts despite tragedies that they experience. It starts off with Breaking the Waves, which deals with a woman. Uh, she's young. She gets married. And then her husband gets into an accident on on his job and he's bedridden. It's it's unclear where it, where it kind of happens or how it happens, but he kind of has this. I don't want to say it's a psychotic break, but he tells his wife that he wants her to sleep with other men and then tell him about it. Also, she hears this voice in her head, which she believes is God. We're not ever entirely sure if it is God or if she's actually 
not dealing with trauma too well. So there's that side of it as well. Oh yeah. Well, she has conversations with, you know, this presence that she refers to as God, but she also yeah. voices that presence too. So she's asking questions and then giving herself answers. Yeah. Which uh, it's uh, Emily Watson breakthrough performance. This is absolutely my favorite uh, Lars von Trier film. Helena Bonham Carter was originally offered that role. As good as I would have been, this is like an unparalleled performance, like one for oh, yeah, ages. Most I wish, I wish you won the Oscar, uh, Emily Watson. So, wasn't she nominated that year? She was nominated. Yes. At least which that it, have you seen the film, Rachel? No, I haven't. Some performances surpass their films. Like it's an excellent film, but usually this is the type of thing that the Oscars would stay away from. It's a very difficult movie to watch. Very challenging, but the performance is just that good that they they couldn't ignore it. It had to be nominated. Okay, then I'm going to have to see it. It's also got a really interesting look when you look at the picture. It has this real dense tone to the colors and the lighting. And then I found out what they did in post-production to achieve that look. Apparently, when they were doing the edit, they actually transferred all the film to digital video and they cut a video edit of it. But he liked it so much that they actually transferred that edit back to film, which kind of gives that this really interesting, like really thick, dense, grainy look that really you don't see in other movies. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's really interesting because, you know, he's always, you know, he's always kind of like been at the forefront of the video thing. So to hear about that, I was like, oh, I guess that makes sense. And then, well, that that was released in 1996. In 1998, he releases The Idiots, which is one of the first two Dogma 95 films to appear. And this one is the most challenging because you're dealing with a woman who her and her husband go through a tragedy. I don't remember if they lost a child. He does that a lot in his movie. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. For a second, I thought you were describing another movie. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's some tragedy like that. I'm trying to find a description of it, but I can't at the moment. But yeah, she kind of is lost and wandering off, and then she stumbles upon this group, and it's really bizarre. But this group, they're like a commune, and they all pretend that they're on the spectrum as a form of catharsis. On the autism spectrum. Yes. Okay. And it's really bizarre, but she finds her place in the group and it actually helps her go through these dark days she's going to, through. And they also do actually, despite all the acting, they, do, they actually do have a member who is on the spectrum as kind of their inspiration. And as taboo and kind of like troublesome the concept may seem, it's not as bad an execution as you assume it would be. But yeah, it was definitely very divisive when it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival that year because it was that and uh, the celebration because, you know, they both took him to the festival and everyone was like, this is amazing. And then the other set was like, this is garbage. What are you talking about? Because <laughs> it was also it was shot on digital video. That was one of the other reasons, because, you know, Dogma 95, they have all these rules and they kind of circumvented one rule, which the camera work had to be handheld and film cameras are really heavy so Lars was like hey if they have to be handheld why don't we use video and then transfer it to film right so so at least the capturing was still handheld yeah the capturing was still handheld and yeah uh, and then followed up with that in 2000 is Dancer in the Dark starring Bjork yeah and it is such a great film. You know, you deal with her main character. She has 
a condition where her vision is slowly deteriorating. Mm-hmm. And then she, her young son also has this. So she's working to save up for a surgery to help prevent that from happening for him. And it's also a musical. There's many musical numbers and, you know, all sorts of really cool choreography and songs. And then you just kind of see her go through. She's having trouble at work because she's like screwing things up because of her vision. And she's also daydreaming these musical sequences because that that's how it, the sequences happen. It's like she's daydreaming and all sorts of stuff like that. And then I'm not going to tell you what happens at the climax, but it definitely gets very dramatic and intense. And then the ending is probably one of the most heartfelt gut wrenching endings ever. Yeah. It's like the epitome of bleakness. Yeah. And it's, it was also a Palme d'Or winner. So. Yeah. And yet it was also, I think rather divisive in its reception, wasn't it? I think on a larger scale, I feel like it's like maybe getting a better, more cohesively positive reception now, but you're absolutely right, Rachel, at the time of its release, it, it it kind of was too much for some, Like it's out of all of his films. And we're talking about Lars von Trier here, who's done some really crazy stuff that might be like one of his hardest to watch. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. It's, it's crazy. Um, I'm also a, a gargantuan Bjork fan. She's my all-time favorite female performer. Despite the reception, she got so much praise for that role. Like there are performances that are legendary, but there is something about this that puts this at like the top of the list, like one of the best performances of all time. And she won as well at Cannes, I think. Yep, I believe she won Best Actress. Yeah, I think she did. Yeah, like just brilliant performance. Now you know it's hard to bring this up and her and him without you know what problematic stuff might have happened behind the scenes. I don't fully know the story. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, to revisit a film like this. That's now kind of been marred with the revelations of what happened during the me too movement. I'm not entirely sure. Um, we're going to step away from that though. I just wanted to bring it up just so, you know, it, it has been, it has been acknowledged at least, but uh, just judging it as a film itself very, uh, you know, like every other frat boy growing up, I thought Sweeney Todd was the darkest musical I've ever seen. No, <laughs> not even close. Like this, this makes Sweeney Todd look like Arthur. Like it's just like Arthur Reed, the artwork, not Arthur as in the, uh, you know, anyway. <laughs> yeah, the uh, John Gilgood. Anyway, um, no, this film, if you haven't seen, and it's just such an inventive uh, musical as well with how Bjork, which one of my favorite soundtracks of all time is called Selma Songs, which was the musical accompaniment to this film. And it includes all of the original songs, I believe. Um, it The music just creates sounds out of like, you know, heavy machinery and street noises. It's just amazing to listen to. Yeah, well, she also works in a factory. So there's the industrial setting that kind of goes along with those sounds. And it was also it also helped her accomplish her dream of like she's always wanted to do a musical. And this was her opportunity to do it. Yeah, especially like since her world's going to be enveloped by audio since she's losing her sight. It just makes perfect sense. It's a really well thought out thing. I haven't seen The Idiot, so I'm not going to lie. I'm not sure if I'm in love with the idea. But the other two I can vouch for um, both are two of his best for sure. Yeah. I just thought, you know, it's definitely, 
I think it's just such a strong. It's, he's coming off of his uh, his first trilogy, which is referred to as the Europe trilogy, which I've only seen two of the films, mm-hmm. uh, Element of Crime and Europa, because the other one, Epidemic, it's like I can only find it on DVD, and it's like overpriced. So I'm like, I'll I'll, I'll wait till that maybe cheapens. But you know, he's it, it, he very he stripped away a lot of the stuff he did in those because those ones, and I honestly prefer that style that he did back then because these were very like technical spectacles. Like he was doing a lot of really interesting things, like film wise but these are the ones where he stripped everything down and really pushed for more storytelling but then he would become and it's funny we brought up Baz Luhrmann very Baz Luhrmann like very very uh, melodramatic if you look at something like Melancholia like if you gave it different music and stripped apart some of the more taboo stuff of that film and you look at like the opening sequence if you told me that was Baz Luhrmann I'd be like yeah okay like, they're so similar in style if you think about it. What if we put them together? <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, that would be very interesting. Yeah, I think that's, uh, again, I haven't seen The Idiots. I'm not sure if I would want to, uh, in all things considered. But the other two, I think, make up for at least two two portions of a fantastic trilogy. So uh, I think that's an excellent choice. All right, so what's yours, Andreas? Okay, so when you first asked this, I had like 10 in mind. And the oh, problem wow. is, the, the problem is, this is something that typically when we come up with these ideas, it's something I have to think about. Trilogies, I don't know what it is. I'm not obsessed with the idea of trilogies, but for some reason, that's just always been a mental list of mine. What is my favorite trilogy? Really? And I don't know what it is. And. I have a couple of answers. I, I've selected just one, and I'll get to that in a second. But the honorable mentions, just because I, I feel like it's important to bring up what trilogies can be. You know, so, um, you know, Wonkar Wise got a stylistic trilogy, like in the same way that Lars von Trier does and Baz Luhrmann. Uh, so you go, you know, I go with something like that, or like, you know, something that's a little bit more lopsided, like Sergio Leone's uh, Dollars trilogy, which the first two are good, but it's the third one that's amazing. Um, or even his uh, What's About a Time trilogy, which, again, is more stylistic-based and, like, thematically-based. Um, then you have something that's a little bit more narratively cohesive, like the Apu trilogy, which uh, navigates the titular character's basically entire life, from when he's a child until he's a working adult. And the Before trilogy, which uh, Linklater is obviously very inspired by filmmakers like Satyajit Ray, because, you know, Boyhood is very much in the same vein as as the Apu trilogy. And the Before trilogy almost feels miraculous. Like, how can you continue this story decades apart? And it's just still so fresh, so loving. How do you do that? You have something else like... This was my previous answer for ages, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which they filmed, I believe, all at the same time, somewhat backwards. So all of it is solid. The whole thing is solid. And for the longest time, that was my answer. But then you also have the trilogy, which kind of did the complete opposite and shouldn't actually be as good as it is, which is a Toy Story trilogy, which wasn't meant to be a trilogy. They just kept making up stuff. And every single time they knocked it out of the park. Now, I know there's a fourth one now. I personally like the fourth one, but I know that this has kind of killed it for some people. So I don't know if it's in that conversation anymore. But you see what I mean? It's something that I've clearly thought about a bunch. Do I go with the Bergman like faith trilogy where it's like all these you know questions about God and religion? Do I go with there's so many things you can pick, but ultimately 
last year when I did all of my uh, decade stuff, there's one that stuck out. And one that now that I really think about it and look at how I ranked all of my movies, I have to go with this. It's uh, Christoph Kieslowski's The Three Colors Trilogy, which I think, uh, with all things considered, is the greatest trilogy of all time for, for myself personally. Um, have either of you seen it? I don't recall. I have not. No, but I'm pretty sure I have the box set, Criterion box set. I just haven't watched okay. it yet. I will not spoil. They are in ways very loosely narratively linked that kind of exist within the same universe. He loved that idea a lot, Kiyosaki, where the Decalogue, which isn't a trilogy, but that's like one of the greatest things that I've ever seen too. That's 10 different stories and they all happen within the same location. So they kind of like, you know, this whole six degrees of separation type thing, you can kind of just imagine them all in this one area. Same thing here. These stories aren't really connected outside of like the smallest instances, but they are still. So each color, and this is what's really cool. I don't know if either of you know this. Each color represents a different genre, but not specifically a genre, but a genre that he wished to break. So blue is naturally a tragedy, like a tragic drama. But how can we get rid of the tragedy within tragedy and make it kind of like this numbness um white is a comedy but how can we strip any of the joy out of a comedy this one's kind of the more divisive film but i feel like in recent years it's gotten a bit more attention and red is romance but how can we strip the heart out of romance and make it feel kind of you know like not soulless but like not blind as to what reality actually is in a romantic gaze so you also have like these titans in each of these films so julia bonosh is in blue uh she's not in it for very long but julie delby is in white um and arine jacob is in is in red as well as jean-louis tritignan you know the list continues of the qualified cast here each film has its own story so in the in blue you deal with a widow trying to move on after this grave accident that has changed her entire life. In white, you have this this gentleman who's trying to move on after his wife divorces him and tries to flee some of everything, and he's kind of uh, you know kind of I kind of playing with the idea of revenge. He's not entirely sure. In red, you have this uh, this model who discovers almost like, I don't want to say too much about this because it's one of those films where the, the less you know, the better, but kind of discovers this hidden quality of society that opens her eyes to, again, this gaze that the world has, like, you know, this idea of the voyeur or, um, and it's interesting because she's a model. So her face is plastered everywhere. So, that but like you know to the common everyday person how does it feel to be like you know gazed upon in the same way so in case uh in case it hasn't made sense just yet it's these three colors because they all take place in france and they're all yeah they're all based on different french qualities of the flag you know including liberty and and all of that stuff so um I highly, highly recommend these films. And I'll say this. They're all fantastic for different ways. But 
you're kind of wondering why this would be a trilogy. You, if you like look closely enough, you can see that there's like storyline simultaneously happening in the background of one film and then in the foreground of another. So they kind of cross paths, these characters, but it's the way that everything ties together that takes this from a very great trilogy to the greatest. Once you realize where Kiyosaki's going with this. And um, also in case you're not familiar with his style, they're not just named after colors for a reason. Or sorry, they're not just named after colors for any old reason. They're actually inhabited by these colors. So blue is like drenched in blues everywhere. And white is like all these like white curtains and cream colored flooring. And red has like all these crimsons everywhere. But they also leak each other's colors in there. So like you'll see like splashes of red in, in blue or, you know, white lights in red. So they all kind of coexist. And if you're a sucker for aesthetics like I am, Kiyosowski, first off in general, is brilliant. The Double Life of Veronique, which is my favorite film of his. Some of the best cinematography you'll ever see, ever. But in this trilogy, the visuals are like absolutely to die for. It sounds incredible. I'm going to have to check that out. Yes, and you own it on yeah. Blu-ray, so <laughs> you have like the perfect viewing opportunity for this. I have but so many Criterion box sets I still have to watch. How about Criterion box sets we would hope to make? So, as you said earlier, this was uh, your idea. Was there a film, not necessarily that we liked enough to have a trilogy, because not every film deserves to have a trilogy, like Lawrence of Arabia has perfect closure, doesn't need a trilogy. What film would be perfect to have a trilogy? So maybe we should go in the same order. Rachel, what film are you going to turn into a trilogy? Well, I struggle with the idea of trilogies. I like my films to be one and done. I like things to come to an end. So I had a really hard time picking topics for this episode. In the first half, you know, I don't really complete a lot of trilogies. And in the second half, I thought, well, why would I want to make this film any longer than it was? So... I thought about it, and I bounced around a couple of ideas, and the one I came up with was Office Space. That's very interesting. Yeah, it was made in the late 90s, early 2000s, I can't remember the exact date, and it was a completely different time. So while we're watching this, it's still a really funny movie, but it is a little bit dated. Like, the, the main problem the guys have at work is that they're bored and their printer doesn't work. Like, we've kind of moved on a bit since then, we've got bigger things to deal with. So I thought, well, okay, we've got Office Space. It's in the sort of 90s dot-com boom situation. They're, they're all doing great. They just need a little more satisfaction out of life. So the second part would take place in 2008, or the, maybe the early 2010s, and it would be surrounding the recession. And maybe you'd have some of the same characters. You'd probably have a similar company. And it'd be dealing quite humorously with starting your career and working on your career in the recession world. And the sudden lack of security, having to take what you can get, having to be grateful that you're actually there. And maybe they start to fight back a little, but they have to be sneaky about it because if they look the slightest bit disloyal, there's a hundred other people who will take their job. So the second part would be sort of, all right, what do we as workers deserve? Then the third one, I think you can guess when it would take place. Uh, would they all be working at Amazon? They would all be at home because it would be during the pandemic, mostly because I want to see oh, how no. Milton would <laughs> Milton would be in all three movies, obviously. 
and obviously I'm trying to forget that we're still in this thing. <laughs> okay, that's that's yeah, so but, obvious. You know, I want to see how Milton's going to handle Zoom. But, <laughs> you know, I think that this has made us sit back and take a look at how our world works and say, wait a minute, are we doing this all wrong? Can we do this differently? There's a big labor shortage in the U.S. Um, I've heard people float around universal basic income, the, um, the four-day work week, all of these things that maybe we should be doing differently. Maybe we're not serving people the right way. And so even though these movies would still be funny, they'd still be lighthearted, it would slowly expand the question of who we are in the working world, office space, how do we make the most of our life, um, office space too, the recessioning, um, how do we cope in a world that's no longer working for us, and then office space three, corona panic, um, do we need to change? Do we need to start over? And so it would slowly expand this question. Who are we? It should be called remote office space. Yeah. Home oh, that office would be space. a great title. Home office Home space. Home office space. <laughs> I've got to tell you, even before you like, uh, before you explored the idea, um, I'm not even a big office space fan, but that actually makes perfect sense. Even before you went into each and every single individual film, it just makes sense because especially to us millennials who have had to job hop a lot, the idea of, of shifting jobs and work environments and these separate battles, it just seems so identifiable. So when you brought up like, you know, office space, which takes place literally in an office space, a trilogy, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I think you would bring it up to date just a little. Yes, absolutely. And it's weird because they technically kind of did do something like that with, you know, the horrible bosses. They, they tried to. They had a second one, which, you know, wasn't fantastic. But, you know, if anything, that's evidence that it's at least possible. Mm-hmm. So that's what my answer would be. Fantastic. I'm fully on board with that. Would uh, would it always be a stapler or would other things be compromised? Like, would it be like, you know, a hole punch? Oh, no, we're keeping uh, the stapler. We're keeping the stapler. Okay. And Flair. What's Flair now? Is it going to be likes on Facebook or something else? Yeah. Maybe maybe Jennifer Aniston is now running the company's Instagram account and she's not updating enough and they're mad at her. Fantastic. That, actually, that could actually work. Uh, James, what are you going to turn into a trilogy and why? Kill Bill. Well, okay. that only makes sense. You're part of the way there. <laughs> okay. no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. I'm not talking doing Kill Bill Volume 3. I'm talking about in the manner of the first two, so we'd get volumes three and four and five and six. Ooh, oh my game goodness. changer. Okay, okay. So that, that's a little bit more interesting than, than how it initially sounded. First off, what in the hell is that going to look like? I'm guessing Uma Thurman's daughter is going to be in this. What's her name? Maya Hawk. I'll explain. So when okay. we do three and four, it would actually, and obviously can't happen now because David Carradine has passed on, but three would deal with his assembly of the five vipers. So it would kind of have that nonlinear narrative of him putting together the team, but you'd also have sections where you get kind of their backstory on them as independents. Ooh. Right on. And then volume four would be a story leading up to when Beatrix leaves the five vipers. Wow. Okay. And now volume five and six would kind of play with ideas that Tarantino's thrown out about how he would approach a three because he's stated that, L driver, despite not having any eyes anymore, she didn't die. No one saw her die, so she's still alive. Sophia Fatal, who is Bill's assistant, she's still alive. She just is missing an arm. So they'd still be out there. So the idea is 
or one of the ideas was um, Vernita Green's daughter who witnessed Beatrix kill her mother. She flat out opened the invitation like, hey, if you want to come revenge, I'll be waiting. So the idea is they would raise her to be an assassin and then she would go get revenge. I'm liking okay. this. Then, you know, after since it, it since obviously there's a period of peace that Beatrix and BB have, this is one where older BB would be played by Maya Hawk. So we would intercut this whole thing where she's trying to get revenge intercut with stories of their peace years. So it's like, you'll have this kind of dichotomy of like scenes of all this intense action coupled with these like heartfelt moments of her raising her daughter, but also towards the, towards the leading up to the climax, you'll start to see her training her daughter to prepare for the worst. Interesting. Okay. So it's like this whole, this whole series at this point. Yeah. Now, would this count as Tarantino's number 10, or would he have to go up to 11? Uh, he'd have to go to 11. Well, as we know from Spinal Tap, 11's better than 10. That's so. just what I was thinking about. Well, I mean, I, at this point, uh, at this point, it's all one can think about. It's like ingrained in our brains. But <laughs> that's that's interesting that you didn't go for the obvious route of just adding one more film, which is what most people say when they think of Kill Bill's Volume 1 and 2. You're going to make this whole thing like a... Uh, like like this crazy series front to back, like a manga almost. Yeah. It's supposed to be very, because I mean, there's so much of that world to explore that was left unseen. So why not explore little pockets of it along the way to make it, you know, flesh it out a bit better. Sure. And then, and then when his son grows up, he could do a story about, you know, a young Bill. So his son could make the movie about young Bill's years. This is getting mightily ambitious. <laughs> it's the TCU. Tarantino it, oh, cinematic. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that took me a minute because I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm used to like, which is know, actually Marvel. a thing. There's a lot of things he has interspersed through his films that are a part of his own world. Yep. But now there's more. Yes. <laughs> we decree it. Yes. Like the, the Vega brothers from, uh, you know, Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp Fiction. That's just one of the many, um, but the things that that extend outside of it, like uh, you know, the couple in Django and Chain becoming the the parents of Shaft, right? So yeah, he's 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 got these these threads, he's got these ideas. So that is my, you know, fantasy trilogy. Sounds pretty sweet. So yeah, for mine, like Rachel, I had a pretty tough time thinking of one, and then I was trying to think of like, okay, what movies do I like? No, but that ended fine. What about this one? That ended just fine, too. Exactly. So I kind of went the backwards route and thought about like trilogies that I do like. So what trilogies worked? And one of them was Toy Story. And it's like, okay, what other Pixar films could be better turned into a trilogy? So I was trying to think, like, Ratatouille is one of my favorites, but I love the way that it ended. I don't think there needs to be another one. Wally, there certainly doesn't need to be another one. What are they going to do now? Just say, you guys didn't listen. The world's still suffering. Like, what are, we, what are they going to do? Um, thought about the sequels that didn't work. Like, Finding Dory is okay. It's cute, but it's not amazing. Monsters University, same thing. The only other trilogy they have is Cars, and we know what a car wreck that is. <laughs> but then I thought about one film, and it's like, wait, I've got it. Inside Out needs to be a trilogy. So what you have is you have little Riley in the first film. You're looking at her battling her teenage emotions. 
I interpret it as her developing depression because of the move, her insecurities, her, you know, anxiety developing as well. So that's why, you know, sadness and joy kind of coexist because, because she's depressed. So even in her, in her happiest state, she's sad, but in her saddest state, she tries to pull through. So that makes perfect sense. Life doesn't just stop right there. This was resolved in a short period of time. What would the rest of Riley's life look like with these same emotions and with the idea of amalgamated emotions and, you know, these these core memories having multiple emotions because, you know, that's how the film resolves. It, it basically, you know, this coexistence of, of feelings. So I thought for the second film, she's now an adult, maybe late 20s, early 30s, basically realizing we never figure it out. And that's something that a lot of us have, have been feeling, us millennials. We never really figure it out. We kind of just have to go along with it, figure it out as we go. I think that could be very important, especially with what can, where can we go f- from here when it comes to the, to the actual feelings, these emotions. Now that they're bonding and they're blurring together, can they step on each other's toes and ruin certain events? Like, perhaps she's gotten married, but she feels resentful because somebody gave her a hard time about where they were sitting. They didn't They didn't follow seating plans, so and her, her wedding has, like, a bit of anger in it. Something like that, where now it's, like, actually affecting some of these bigger events. What would that look like in her mind? I'm not sure, but I'm sure it's something as cataclysmic as the original. But then we get to the final film, the one where Riley's now old, looking back on the years, and unfortunately, her memories are starting to fade. Her memories are starting to are starting to break. What does she cling on to? What helplessness are is going on within her mind with all of these emotions clinging onto things, trying to trying to help her relive things? I think that would be like this emotional, gut wrenching finale to this whole thing, where it's like. Your memories can come and go, but your your emotions, even if you don't fully remember something like a childhood memory, you just remember you felt really good or you didn't really like this one day in class. You don't remember what bothered you, but something did. And I feel like that would be extremely poignant. So Pixar, if you're listening, um, I can give you my bank details offline so uh, you can pay me directly. But uh, they would make all their audience cry themselves to death. I'm telling you, this sounds like it could be an absolute winner. I'm not sure I could bring myself to watch it. <laughs> it, it might be too much. It might be too much, actually. That third one actually might the be The third one might be like a little bit much. Interesting, because when you, you first said Inside Out, I thought you were going to follow with, and then we go into other people's minds, which I think could also be a cool concept, but uh, I that like your idea. That could be interesting, too. Yeah, because we, we do see a little bit of that in the movie, but... Yeah, I think that would be really cool, a whole life. I really identify with Riley because we already get the idea that other emotions kind of have, you know, similar notions. Like, I remember all of the emotions and, and like, the mom's head, they all looked one way. And then the dad's head, I think they all had mustaches or something. It was, it was hilarious. Yeah, and they were all more balanced. All, uh, like, even if anger was in charge, it wasn't taking over. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's because they were they were they were adults, so like you know they got it all in check. Um, I don't know. I like the idea of sticking with Riley because we already 
stick with her inside of her mind this entire time. So why not just go the distance? Like in the same way that we outside of Toy Story 4, we're kind of living Andy's story for three films. Let's stick with Riley. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. We're going to get into our weekly recommendations. But first off, Rachel, take it away. So you can find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the K-Cut. We like to update with little bits of trivia, things like that. Um, And we are going through our cinematic smorgasbord, which we are going to record next week. And it drops on August 2nd, I believe. Yeah, the 2nd. 2nd? Tuesday. Uh, yes, August third, so. actually. August third, yes. Yeah. So, uh, our collective pick is Second, starring Rock Hudson, directed by John Frankenheimer, and then we have got The Poor and Hungry by Craig Brewer. We've got Hexam by Benjamin Christensen, and then The Last Emperor, with uh, directed by Bertolucci, which I'm looking forward to. Cool. Yeah, we're going to do our weekly recommendations. Uh, Okay, I, I mean, th- this this is this isn't very imaginative, but for mine, um, I brought it up earlier when I was talking about the three colors, the double life of, of Veronique. It's uh, also Kiyosowski, also st- starring Irene Jacob. It's uh, in my top ten favorite films of all time. It's one of those movies where even if you don't know exactly what you're seeing, it's just so painfully beautiful. Um, I can't say more than that. I want you to go into it with with very little. Very little, uh, you know, preconceived ideas about what this is going to be like. Just watch it blindly. Enjoy it. Cry your eyes out. Uh, Rachel, what is your film recommendation for this week? I went with a Quebec movie called The Rocket in English or Maurice Richard in in French. En français. And it's the story of the hockey player Maurice Richard, who was one of the greatest of all time. He was on the Montreal Canadien and... He was not just important to hockey, but he was very, very important in Quebec in its politics and its history in the 1950s. And the movie goes into why, but it's a really good examination of that time period, which was quite pivotal in Quebec history. So I would really recommend it. Perfect. Uh, To make this an authentic trilogy, James, are you going to pick a film that actually has French in it? No, but it's a French-Canadian director. Close enough. Oh, that works. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I decided to go with Enemy by Denis Villeneuve. Okay, okay, great. Why? Just because it's a really good film, and it's one of those ones I don't think people realize came out, and it doesn't really get brought up because it it was released in between Prisoners and Sicario, so those two were actually you know very you know popular and got a well reception, and this one kind of just slipped under the radar. But it's a really good one. It's another collaboration with Jake Gyllenhaal, and it's this really bizarre surrealist neo noir psychological thriller type movie. I'm not going to describe any of it. You just have to watch it because it, it is kind of really weird, but it's it's great. It was in that like crazy streak that he was having because this came out in 2014. Prisoners was 2013. Sicario was 2015. Then Arrival was 2016. And then Blade Runner 2049 was 2017. So he literally released a movie a year for five years and they were all amazing. Well, Dune was supposed to continue that, but that that is not his fault. <laughs> but it's coming out this year. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, exactly. So we're almost there. <laughs> it, well, it wasn't like right after Blade Runner, but I, I think the guy deserves a break anyway. So um, thank you for listening. That was the K-Cut, and we are now going into the L-Cut. 